Uh, You can have a seat. Uh, We are going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes, primarily in chapter 8 this morning, although we will bounce around throughout the book. I am glad to be back here this morning. I was rotating at our other campuses the last couple of weeks. Glad to be back. I missed Creekside. But on my first week back after a few weeks, we are talking about politics this morning. So many people have said, I'm glad you're back. And I said, wait until you hear the sermon before you say that. Uh, This is a dangerous moment, perhaps, to be talking about the subject of government and politics from the book of Ecclesiastes. Because as you know, we are in the midst of a very charged time in the history of our nation and in the flow of the election cycle. As I was doing some research this week on the subject of politics, thinking about what I was going to say, I did a Google search just looking for some resources about voting and politics, and I ran across a book on Google, in Google Books, and this is exactly how the uh, description of the book came up. Americans are too dumb to vote. Right now, I looked at it, and to be honest with you, my first thought was, if you're going to call me dumb, make sure you spell everything correctly. Right? So then I tried to click on the book to read portions of it, and it was out of print. Not perhaps too surprising uh, that it was a bit out of print. Uh, and then I thought, you know, I don't need to read it because the description validates the thesis of the book. Right? Uh, if you cannot spell it all right, then it does admittedly convince me. Right? We may be too dumb to vote. Right? Perhaps you have felt that way heading into this election cycle. It may be that uh, you watch what's happening on a national level, on a state level, on a local level, and you think, what has happened to the people of our country? Why is it that political discourse has lowered itself simply to the lowest common denominator where it's so difficult for us anymore even to talk about ideas, but instead we find ourselves just shouting and elections become about who can shout the loudest than who has perhaps the best policies and ideas. I wonder if you've had any good political conversations lately. Maybe you've had some that are frustrating. Maybe you have had some that have caused rifts in your family, among your friends. Maybe you are in the daily habit now of unfriending people on Facebook based on their political posts. I have not seen, at least in my lifetime, an election cycle that has been so emotionally charged and so divisive. And some of you in the midst of that say, you know what, I'm just not going to talk about it, and so you want to bury your head in the sand. Some of you say, I am going to talk about it, and so you're the one that starts the argument, right? Others of you say, I am moving to France after this election. There is a deep sense of fear and of anger and of division around the subject of politics and around the nature of our government. People are disillusioned and afraid. I read an interesting survey this past week 
that said, uh, if you go back to the year 1964, in 1964, if you asked people whether or not they trusted their government, in general, 77% of the American population would say that they trusted the government all the time or most of the time. 77%. They asked the same question of the electorate this past fall, last October, and of our current population, 19% say they trust the government all or most of the time. In the past 50-some years, we have gone from people generally trusting the government to people saying, I don't trust them. And the older people are, in fact, the less they trust the government, which suggests that the longer you watch them, the less you trust them. All right, but on the flip side, although people say, I don't trust the government, The same survey indicated that people want the government to solve their problems, right? I don't trust them, but people said, I think the government ought to fix poverty. The government ought to fix crime and immigration and health care. And so you find this tension that we all feel that I don't trust the government to actually do anything, but I think they ought to fix everything. And I think that tension resides within all of our hearts to some degree or another. And I wonder if the real problem is that you and I and those in our nation have turned politics and the government into a false god in and of itself. Because there are problems in Every government, everybody would acknowledge that. Even people who work for the government will acknowledge there are problems in every government. It has been that way since the dawn of time. But I wonder if the increasing polarization and anger and fear is due to the fact that at a root level, we have turned politics into a God, expecting the government to solve problems that only God can solve. And in that idolatry, then, we turn to cynicism and fear and anger. If you feel frustrated with the political process, if you feel worried about the direction of our nation, there is good news for you this morning, and that is uh, you and I are not alone. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes and as you read through the scripture, you will find that these ideas about the limited and corrupt nature of human governments, these ideas go all the way back at least to Solomon. And when you read Ecclesiastes, especially chapter 8, you see that Solomon had a deep cynicism about the value and the power of human governments. Now, the irony here is that Solomon was a head of state. Right? He was the king. If anybody had the power to enact policies in his day, it was Solomon. And yet Solomon will say throughout the course of Ecclesiastes that kings are corrupt, governments are limited, and the only one who knows the way things are going to go in the course of history is God himself. And the hard news is, He hasn't disclosed all that information to you and me. God is on his throne, and you and I are on the earth. And what we'll see as we walk through Ecclesiastes, particularly chapter 8 this morning, 
is this. Government does have a role in the world. Uh, It is a role that God has given to the government. Government does have its place. There is value in government, but government also has severe limitations. And I think for us, as we head into election season, and as we have a primary in a couple of days, it's important for you and me to remember that ultimately God is on his throne. The government cannot and will not save us, but it serves a very limited function in the world, a good function, but a limited function. And so the question for you and me to ask ourselves is, am I trusting in political leaders to solve problems only God can solve? And am I modeling for my friends, my family, my kids, my grandkids, am I modeling a life of faith in God regardless of who sits in the White House or in the legislature? Remember, I want to remind us as we uh, continue in Ecclesiastes of the overarching concept of the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. So we talked about wisdom, and we talked about uh, money and pleasure and work, and all of these things that we are tempted to use as sort of a platform to find Lasting significance. So we place all of the weight of our lives on something that cannot bear the weight of our lives because Ecclesiastes highlights that only trusting in God will lead to a life of eternal and lasting significance. This week we will see that when we talk about politics and the government. And fundamentally, this is what we'll see. Governments have their place, Governments have their problems, but God remains on the throne. Government has a good role in the world, but will always have problems because governments are composed of sinful human beings. But God is on his throne. He lifts up kings. He deposes kings. He oversees the course of history so we can trust him. All right, so governments have their place. Governments have their problems. God is on his throne. Solomon does acknowledge that governments do have their place. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, Solomon writes, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Okay, so in other words, he says, look, if you serve the king or you serve the government, you have a responsibility before God to keep the command of the king. Don't be in a hurry to leave him. In other words, don't abdicate your position or role as a servant of this human government. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Don't align yourself against the king. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. All right, what Solomon tells us is this, that uh, before God, the government does have a role. And we're going to see, as you go throughout the scripture, you see the government has a role. And fundamentally, what that role is, is to enforce justice, to make sure that criminals are punished and that those who do right are rewarded to create an environment of peace and safety. And so Solomon even here says, look, if you keep a royal command in general, you're going to stay out of trouble. All right. Paul will say the same thing in Romans chapter 13. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. In other words, in general, if you obey the law, in general, you're not going to have a problem with the government. Uh, Tax season is approaching quickly. And uh, I will tell you just honestly, one of my primary goals at tax season is to avoid any conversations with the IRS. Most of you would agree. If you pay your taxes, you file them on time, the best outcome is they say, yep, tax return accepted. We don't need to talk to you anymore. You don't want the IRS as your pin pal. They have their job. Your job is to pay your taxes. Similarly with the police. I think most of us would say uh, we value the police, but our goal on the way to work in the morning is not to have an extended conversation with an officer, right? We want to be left alone. And what Solomon says and what Paul says as well is that the best way to be free of the government's intervention in your life is to obey because the government's role fundamentally is to punish evil behavior and to reward the right behavior. Now, we will talk in a moment about the fact that governments don't always accomplish that effectively. But Peter says this same thing again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. I think most of us would say, I am glad there are laws. I am glad that we do not live in an anarchy, that murder and theft and rape are punished by law because we don't want to live in a culture where those who do evil things are rewarded and never punished. So the government has that role. You you and I don't want to live in an anarchy. Uh, I was in a sixth grade class that briefly uh, uh, degenerated into an anarchy. Here's what happened. We had a good teacher. He was a pretty good man, pretty good teacher, but he had a bad habit of leaving the room for long periods of time. He would give us a worksheet and then just go away for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Uh, Who knows what he was doing? Perhaps he was eating a sandwich. Perhaps he was having a smoke. We had no idea where he was, but he would be gone and we would finish our work uh, before he came back and realize that he wasn't coming back. And there are few things in the world more dangerous than a class of bored sixth graders. And so we began to throw things at one another. Uh, First, it started small, right? Little pieces of paper. And then as we realized he wasn't coming back, that there was no justice in the world, we began to throw larger objects, pins and pencils and erasers. And every kid in the class was participating. Children who are now doctors and lawyers (laughs) were participating, standing on the desks, grabbing erasers, items from his desk, throwing staplers and pencils and pens and paper. And here's what we did. We had uh, one child who was designated as the lookout. And uh, he would sit in the hallway. And when we saw Mr. Shoemaker coming back down the hall, he would turn his head into our classroom and go, he's coming quick. And we would scramble around. We'd pick everything up and we'd sit down in our chairs before he noticed what was happening. 
We did eventually get caught, and his wrath was severe. But I remember those couple, couple of weeks thinking this, there is no retribution for our crimes. There is no justice. All of us, if we lived in a society where there was no punishment for crime, would be tempted to commit crime. All of us, every single one of us. That is not only in sixth graders, that is in grown-ups as well. If you knew that you would not be caught for breaking the speed limit, you would likely be speeding a lot more. Right? Some of you do when you think you won't get caught. If you knew that you would not be found out, if you cheated on your taxes, you would be more inclined to do it. And it goes on from there. So I'm glad we live in a nation and a world where there are laws. And the scripture affirms that. The government has its place to enforce justice upon criminals. And so Paul will write even to Timothy, he says, first of all, then I urge that in treaties and prayers, Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says to Timothy, what we want to pray for is an environment in which the kings and those in authority essentially leave us alone to worship Jesus and to share the gospel because the mission of our lives is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the best government is one that keeps us safe from crime and otherwise essentially stays out of our lives. This is Paul's argument to Timothy. Pray that kings and those in authority would do their job so we can live a quiet life in godliness and dignity to share the gospel. Governments absolutely have their place. But of course, all of us are aware that while government has its place, government also has problems. Governments have a role that God has given to them, but governments have problems. One of those is this. They are invariably corrupt. And I use that term deliberately. Uh, I'm not suggesting that every person who works for the government or is involved in politics is corrupt. What I am saying is every government has men and women in the government who abuse their power. And so every government invariably has elements in it of corruption. And Solomon in his day observed this. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Those in power have a tendency in general to abuse their power. Power has a corrupting influence on our hearts. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Power has a corrupting influence often in our hearts. I read about a uh, psychological study that was done in 2003, and it's come to be known as the Cookie Monster Study. 
Uh, and here's how the study operated. Uh, the researchers divided the participants into groups of three, right? So you would walk into a room. It would be you and two other people. And then they walked in and they randomly assigned one person to be in charge. They said, you're the leader in this group of three. And then they gave them a task to accomplish, some very boring task, writing an essay. And they told the leader, you're responsible to make sure it gets done and also to evaluate the performance of the other two in your group. So they began to work on this task, uh, but the task was not the real experiment. The real experiment happened when they brought in a plate of four cookies, chocolate chip cookies. Now, if you imagine, if you're in a group of three and there's a plate of four cookies... How many will you eat? One, right? Nobody typically wants to be that one who grabs two cookies when there are only four cookies, right? That is viewed as uncouth. Some of us view that as an act of evil incarnate, right? To take two cookies when there's only four. Here's what they found, that uh, everybody would grab one cookie and then they would sit there for a while with that last cookie on the plate and you know who would invariably grab the last cookie. It was the guy in charge, right? The leader would grab the last cookie. And what they found also was that the leader, the one who had been randomly appointed to be the leader, would also eat with his mouth open more often. He would smack. He'd allow crumbs to drip down his shirt because they found he just didn't care anymore about their approval. Why? Because who's going to say anything? He's in charge, right? This is his world of cookies, and he can do whatever he wants right? Even in a very small context like that, they found that power has this influence on us where we recognize, hey, I'm in charge. Who's going to stop me? Nobody's going to keep me from enacting my will. That is the danger of power. And I would challenge you, go back and look at the history of nations and even the history of our country, and here's what you'll find. There is not a presidential administration in history that was free from scandal at a relatively high level. Right? doesn't mean every president was corrupt. It means that in every administration, there were high officials who abused their power because power corrupts. The history of Scripture is filled with illustrations of the corruption of power from the kings of Babylon to the kings of Persia to the the Caesars of Rome, and in fact, even the kings of Israel. The history of Israel is a succession of kings who abused their power to oppress the poor, to oppress the weak, and to institute idolatry. That is essentially the message of the books of Kings and Chronicles, is that apart from God as our king, Every human government will eventually degenerate into corruption because governments have a tendency to favor those who are powerful over those who are weak, and those in power often have a tendency to use that power for their own gain. And so governments always have that problem. Even whatever political party you support has that problem. Because it's not a political party problem. It is a human problem of sin. Governments are corrupt because people are sinful. So governments are corrupt. Secondly, Solomon highlights that governments are often inefficient. 
They are inefficient. They are not always effective at accomplishing what they are designed to accomplish. So he'll say in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Uh, Even a government that uh, wants to be just often has a hard time uh, enforcing justice because there are inefficiencies in government, especially when uh, there is more money often than the government needs. That money tends to go to waste and is not used for appropriate things. Uh, I ran across a story that some of you may have seen. This just happened a couple of weeks ago in Spain. Uh, The article is titled, Man Skipped Work for Six Years and No One Noticed Until He Won an Award. This is true. For six years, a government employee at a water treatment facility in this town in Spain collected a salary of over $41,000 per year, and he never showed up. Uh, The only way they found that he wasn't coming to work was when they went to give him an award for 20 years of faithful service to his government. And they found he wasn't there. His uh, supervisor said, I wondered whether he was still working there. Had he retired? Had he died? But the payroll showed he was still receiving a salary. I called him up and asked, what did you do yesterday? The month before, the month before that, he didn't know what to say. And of course, at that point, they fired him. I thought, what a classic illustration of government inefficiency. The money's going somewhere, but we don't know where it's going, right? No one's supervising, no one's tracking, and that happens in governments. More seriously, often justice is delayed. And we've all heard the expression, justice delayed is justice denied. What's interesting is brutal dictatorships tend to be more efficient than democracies, but they're also more corrupt, right? They can kill people quickly, but not always the right people. And so governments have often these inherent inefficiencies. I read a uh, book, The Memoirs of Robert Gates, who used to be the president of A&M and then went on to be the secretary of defense. And here's what he said about government inefficiency. He said, despite everyone being nice to me, getting anything consequential done was difficult. Uh, And I am uh, changing his actual words just a little bit here says, even in the midst of two wars, I did not just have to wage war in Afghanistan and Iraq and against Al-Qaeda. I also had to battle the bureaucratic inertia of the Pentagon, surmount internal conflicts within both administrations, avoid the partisan abyss in Congress, evade the single-minded parochial self-interest of so many members of Congress, and resist the magnetic pull exercised by the White House to bring everything under its control and micromanagement Over time, the broad dysfunction of today's Washington wore me down, especially as I tried to maintain a public posture of nonpartisan calm, reason, and conciliation. Here's a man that you would think, if anybody has power to make things efficient, it should be him. And so when we trust in government, we often find that we're let down because governments are corrupt and governments are inefficient. They don't always accomplish well what they set out 
to accomplish. That, I think, this inefficiency perhaps, is one of the sources of why there's so much anger and angst right now on a national level about our government is because people are realizing we send people every four years or every eight years and things don't happen like we want them to happen and it is a function of the fact that governments are often inefficient and even further, they are deeply limited in what they can accomplish. Governments are inefficient and deeply limited, every government. And Solomon points this out again, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, for there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? In other words, this is the problem we have, that there's a right time for everything, but nobody knows when that is. Nobody knows when things are going to happen, and so who can tell you when things are going to happen? And what that leads to is this. No man, and this is in the context of government, no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. In other words, the President of the United States cannot control nature. He cannot make the wind stop by blowing more wind back at the wind. He can't stop natural disasters. Nobody has authority over the day of death. In other words, the government can kill you, yes, but it can't stop you from dying. There is no pardon from death that comes from the government for you and me. There is no discharge in the time of war. Particularly if your nation is attacked by hostile forces, the president doesn't always have the authority to say, yeah, you can get out of there because sometimes it is you fight, or you die. So he can't always discharge you. He doesn't always even have that power. Evil will not deliver those who practice it. In other words, he says, even those who rise up in evil and try to overthrow the government and start a new government, or those who resist the government, uh, it doesn't deliver you. The government is deeply limited in its ability to do the things we really want it to do, because we often desire the government to save us from things that only God can save us from. No government can provide salvation from death or forgiveness of sin or eternal life or a perfect kingdom. You and I all desire to live under a righteous government. We all desire to have a leader who does what is good. That desire, like most desires, has its root in God himself. But what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes is that human governments will never satisfy that desire, but instead we turn that desire of our hearts to God himself, to say there's only one king who will reign in perfect justice, perfect peace, who can fix all the problems and save us from death. Governments on earth have a place, but they have deep limitations. Last fall, before the election cycle really got going, I had lunch with an old friend who happened to be working on the campaign of one of the candidates for this year. And as we talked, he said, you know, I believe in the policies that my candidate wants to enact. But he looked at me and he said, I have to be honest with you, even if everything goes right and my guy wins, the problems we face are so deep and divisive and serious There's not much he can do. And this was a man who was investing his time and energy to get somebody elected whom he believed would do better than the others. But even this man 
said, his power is deeply limited. Presidents and rulers and legislatures can only do so much. And it is at our peril that we trust the government to solve our problems. As I've thought about uh, politics this year, one of the things I have noticed is there really is a deep fear that if things don't go a certain way, I think on all sides of the political spectrum, if things don't go a certain way, we are doomed, our country will fall apart, the sky is falling. And as you look at the scripture, here's what you see. The reality is that nations rise and fall according to God's timetable. And every nation throughout history that has existed has fallen according to God's timetable. Russell Moore, in his book, Onward, says this, There will come a day when old glory yields to an older glory, when the new republic succumbs to a new creation. We must not shirk our callings as citizens, but we also must not see our citizenship of the moment as the final word. We are Americans best when we are not Americans first. Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, right? And God stays on his throne. God stays on his throne. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you are in Ecclesiastes 8, just flip backwards for a moment to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Famous passage that most of you have heard, starting in verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Some of you are hearing it. I swear it's not too late, right? (laughs) What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? Now listen to this. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What is he saying? He's saying this, there is a time for everything. Here's the problem. Only God knows it, right? God has created the time for war, for peace, for governments to rise and fall, for laughter, for crying. God has made the time and only he knows it. And you and I don't have his clock. I don't know if you've ever interacted with a toddler and tried to explain time To a two or three-year-old, when my oldest daughter was about two or three, every moment of time uh, was divided up into four quadrants, right? It was either before daytime nap, after daytime nap, before nighttime nap, that's what she called her sleep for the night, nighttime nap, or after nighttime nap, right? Those were the four quadrants of her life. So if you said to her, look, we are going to go to the zoo on Thursday at four o'clock, that meant nothing, to her. 
Is that before nighttime nap, after nighttime nap? So we would, we would start doing things like two nighttime naps and a daytime nap, right? And kind of add them up and try to explain to her, this is what this meant. And she would just get confused. And what Solomon tells us is this, compared to God's understanding of time, that's us, right? We don't have his clock. We don't even understand how he measures time. And so we panic about what's going to happen with the nation, with this government, and what is God doing in history? And Solomon says, I don't know, but God is on his throne. And so in Ecclesiastes 3, 14, he says, I know everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. For God is so worked that men should fear him. Governments have their plans, but God stays on his throne. Psalm chapter 2, one of my favorite psalms. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I don't know if you've ever seen a small child throw a tantrum and been tempted to laugh because they don't want to wear pants or they don't want to wear the right pants that you want them to wear or they don't want to eat green beans or all they want to eat is chocolate and they fall on the floor and they ball up their fists and their face gets red and you know you need to discipline them but you want to laugh because what you're thinking is child you will lose You cannot win. The forces arrayed against you are so much greater than the small amount of power you have lying on the floor. That's the imagery of Psalm 2. The nations ball up their fists, they rage, they get red. The kings and rulers say, we will take the place of God and we will make our nation greater than God himself. And God sits up in heaven and goes, are you serious? And he laughs. And he says, I have my king. And Psalm 2 is a messianic hymn that prophesies the coming kingdom of Jesus himself and says, I will be on my throne and I will set up my king who will overrule all of your little kingdoms. And that's the history of the scripture, by the way. Babylon rises and falls. Persia rises and falls. Greece rises and falls. Alexander the Great takes over the known world by the time he's in his early 20s. By the time he's in his 30s, he is dead and his empire is divided into four pieces and it never recovers. And the great kings and nations of this world rise and fall and God stays on his throne. And so our citizenship is always first and foremost in heaven. This fundamentally is why as a church we don't start our services by saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Not because we are unpatriotic, but because we serve the kingdom of heaven always first. The church of Jesus Christ is no arm of a political party. It is no department of a governmental entity. It is men and women united ultimately 
under the flag of Jesus Christ to say, wherever I live as an, in a nation, I will pray for my leaders, I will participate wisely, I will work to be a good citizen, but first and foremost, God is on his throne and his kingdom is coming to overrule all earthly kingdoms. So governments do have their place, but it is not the place of God. So as we close, just a few thoughts by way of application. Yes, pray for our leaders. As Paul writes to Timothy, pray for those in authority. Pray that wise men and women will ascend to places of authority, men and women who know God, who will create an environment where we are free to worship Jesus and proclaim the gospel. Yes, pray for our leaders. Participate, participate wisely. Quickly, let me read Ecclesiastes 9, 13 to 18. It says, Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Ask yourself this as you vote and as you participate. Are the leaders we elect those rulers who are shouting among fools? Or are they men and women of wisdom who seek to be wise and and create an environment where we can know and worship Jesus? Participate wisely. Obey the law. Pay your taxes. Drive the speed limit. Obey the law. As long as the government is not asking us to stop worshiping or proclaiming Jesus, as long as they are not asking us to do those things that are in direct contradiction to the Word of God, obey the law. And then lastly, trust God. Whatever happens, trust God. Let us be men and women of faith who model faith in God for the next generation. If you're in here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the message is that Jesus' death and resurrection paid the penalty for all of the sin and corruption in our hearts and in the world, and then he rose again, he defeated death, and he is the only king who can save you from death, who can save you from sin that is true And for all who believe in him, trust in God. I was watching a recent sermon by Andy Stanley on this topic of politics, and he said, look, if you are a man or a woman who is freaking out and saying the sky is falling and it's all over, he said, cut it out because you're scaring the children. Because we need men and women of faith who say God is on his throne and we will trust him. And we will pray, and we will vote, and we will participate wisely, but we are primarily subject to his kingdom that will last forever, that is perfect and righteous and incorrupt and good. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We praise you that because of your word, we can understand even how to approach issues of voting and politics and government and things that stress us out at times. 
We praise you that Jesus is the one true and righteous King. We thank you, Father, that you have placed us in a society where there is a government that enforces laws. And so we pray that we would do our best to obey those laws and to submit to our leadership and that we would pray for our leadership, but that we would always remember that you are on your throne and we need never fear. Father, we thank you so much for all you have given us in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. If you have elementary kids, go check out the open house next door.